Today, we are thrilled to welcome special education attorney Grace Clark to the podcast. In this conversation, Grace explains the IEP process, what parents can and should expect or demand, the differences between an IEP and a 504 plan, and so much more. Grace graduated from law school in 2000 and spent eight years as a public defender. For the next 12 years, she represented parents and children on appeal in dependency cases. After her own battle with the school district over services for her child with learning disabilities, she began to study special education law and added it to her appellate practice. Now she practices special education law and advocacy full-time. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 93 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are welcoming Grace Clark to the podcast, who is an attorney in the South Bay area of LA. Welcome, Grace. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad to have you here. We are very excited to have you because I feel like this is going to be a hugely popular episode based off the things that we're chatting about. Yes. Well, great. I know it's uh, important stuff. It's not a topic that we've gotten too much into on the podcast. So I feel like, you know, 93 episodes in, it's about time. What do you agree, Steph? <laughs> to cover the IEP side yes, of things. Yes. So Grace, why don't you share a little bit about who you are and what you do and who you do it for? Well, I am a special education attorney and I work primarily with families who have children in public school, mostly from three years old all the way through 18. And I help them get services through the public system, either for their behavior or for their education. I got involved in this a few years ago after my own son had learning disabilities. We discovered this when he was about five and he was having trouble reading. And, you know, he went to kindergarten and they just kind of talked to us about it. And in first grade, they were just kind of talking to us about it. Then at the end of first grade, they said, hey, we think he should just repeat first grade. And there was no discussion of testing him or figuring out what was wrong. And I thought, how is another year of the same stuff going to help when it didn't help the first time? And so at that point, we hired an attorney and I started doing a lot of research. And I realized that there was just so much I didn't know about learning disabilities and about the education system. And once I became educated, I started helping friends and helping people that I met along the way. And I think that when you have the knowledge, you really can get exactly what you need for your child and through the public system. But without that, you're really in a position to be taken advantage of and for your child not to get what they need. So I started kind of adding special education law and advocacy to my practice, which at that time was an appellate practice. And then over time, it just became what I started to do full time because there was enough people who needed that kind of help. So that's a little bit about my background. Okay. So I'm going to ask a very broad question, which is what are students actually entitled to? So every student is entitled to a free appropriate public education, and that's abbreviated as FAPE. Mm -hmm. And that's true for any kid, regardless of whether they have a disability. But for most kids who are kind of neurotypical, they go to school and schools are made to give them FAPE just by what the teachers are doing in the classroom. Some kids can't take advantage of that because they have a disability. So those kids need some kind of special education in order to be able to get what every other kid is getting from the classroom. But every kid has the right to have meaningful progress every year, to have the same educational goals and learning every single year as every other kid. And so the IEP process is meant to give kids with disabilities an equal playing field and having the same access to an education as kids who don't need that special help. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the IEP process, because I think that is a very scary term for a lot of parents and families. And what is an IEP? How do you get one? Yeah. Like who is entitled to one? And going back to your 
original when you were transitioning with your own child and not knowing all these things that he deserved and could get, sort of giving us an overview of that. So an IEP stands for an Individualized Educational Plan, and it's a document that entitles a child to special education, and it has to be specific for that child. So it's for children with disabilities. There's a federal law called the IDEA, and that has a list of the disabilities that would qualify. So saying disability, we think of whatever, somebody in a wheelchair, or it doesn't have to be a physical disability, although maybe it is. It can also be a learning disability or problem with your speech and language communication or autism or an intellectual disability. All of these things are specific situations where a child with those disabilities would have trouble taking advantage of being in a regular classroom and learning the way that a teacher teaches to 30 kids with one teacher in a lecture format with worksheets. Mm -hmm. Not everybody learns that way. So the way to find out if you qualify and have a disability in the sense of you know an IEP would be to be tested. If you're a parent who thinks, oh, my child is just not getting what they're supposed to be getting from school, for whatever reason, whether it's their behavior or their concentration or their lack of understanding of the actual skills, they need to have an educational assessment to figure out what's going on for them. So the way a parent can get that is by putting it in writing to the school psychologist, usually the school psychologist and the principal. If you email and send a hard letter saying that you have concerns about your child and here's the areas of concern, then that kind of triggers the process for the school to then test your child. So the teacher can recommend that or the parent can recommend that. The timeline of what that looks like is if a parent sends an email saying, I have concerns that my child is way below grade level in reading and every time we pull out homework, he cries and cries and cries and protests and it takes hours to get it done and a teacher says he can't sit still in class. So I'd like him to be assessed for an IEP and sends that to the school psychologist and the principal. Then within 15 days, the school has to come up with something called an assessment plan. And that's a document which will say, here's the tests that we're going to give your child. We're going to give them you know, a test to see what their present level of performance is in school. So like, really, what grade are they reading at? You know, what level are they performing in math? And then we're going to give them a test to see kind of what their capability is. You know, what's their IQ? What level are they able to perform at? We're going to give them a social emotional battery of tests to see how they're feeling. Are they anxious? Are they feeling depressed? Are they really worried while they're at school? Any area that you said in your letter was potentially problematic, they're going to test for that. So then once you sign an assessment form and return it, the school then has 60 days to do all the assessments and then hold a meeting to go over them with you. I have a couple of questions. The first question is the 15 date deadline and the 60 day deadline. Is that days or is that school days? Calendar days, but there are some exceptions. If the school has a break for something like more than, you know, two weeks, then that doesn't count. Or, so you know, it's like so over like the summer. The Christmas holiday wouldn't count. The summer wouldn't count. Things like that. Is the school required to go forward with testing or can they say, no, we don't agree and deny it at that point? They have to. If you have these concerns and your concerns are related to, you know, how your child is doing in school, whether it's academic or behavioral, but it's interfering with their ability to learn or even making it hard for other kids to learn, they have to. So all you have to do is justify it with those reasons and they have to do the testing. And then you brought up that you should send an email and send a written copy. Can you talk a little bit more about why both are important? We tell parents the same thing. I do a lot through email because I think that's how the world is working these days. But I do think that when there's a document that is important with a timeline like this, where you want to be able to say way down the line, if you're suing the school district because you have not gotten what your child deserves to get, you know, you need to show that the district is out of compliance. And one of the ways they're out of compliance is if they're not sticking with these timelines. And emails can get lost, they can disappear, and people can say they never received them. And if you have a hard copy, it's just hard evidence to be able to say, well, maybe they didn't get my email, but they definitely got my snail mail, you know, because here it is with my postmark you know, date. Okay. So then the child goes through the testing within that 60 days and then what happens? 
okay, so within that 60 days, the school has to finish the testing and have what's called an IEP meeting. So an IEP meeting is a group that includes the parents, a classroom teacher, the school psychologist, any other professionals who are involved in testing the child. For example, if there was a speech and language assessment, then the speech pathologist would come. If there was an occupational therapy assessment, then the occupational therapist would come. Usually a representative from the district comes. Sometimes the principal comes. And this is the IEP team. And every single person on the team, including parents, is supposed to have equal input in coming up with an individualized plan that is going to help the child be able to learn better than they have been. So At the meeting, the first thing everyone's going to discuss is whether the child qualifies for an IEP document. So this is eligibility. They have to meet one of the criteria that I discussed before. So, you know, they have to have a learning disability or a speech and language disability or autism, being deaf, being blind. Um, You know, there's kind of a traumatic head injury. There's a list of things in the IDEA. Another one is called other health impairment. And that can just be any other kind of health problem that's impacting learning. And so kids with more severe ADHD who are having trouble in school often qualify for an IEP under other health impairment. The fact that you get ADHD diagnosis from a doctor doesn't mean that you'll get that. It has to really impact your learning. Some criteria are obvious, like if you have autism, you're going to be eligible. But a specific learning disability is a little bit more of a gray area. So the way that that is diagnosed for the purposes of the IEP is to look at the child's achievement in reading and math and writing, and then look at their ability, their IQ score. So the profile of maybe a child with dyslexia, which is a specific learning disability, would be that their reading levels are very low. Sometimes they're in the first or second percentile. They are not making progress with reading. They're way below where their peers are, even though they've had the same instruction and the same exposure. But their IQ is average or sometimes above average. So their capability is high or is normal. And you would think a child with that intelligence should have no problem learning the basics of reading. So that gap in achievement versus capability is what is the definition of a specific learning disability. So the first thing I want to add is that in some districts, they don't do IQ testing. That's what I was going to bring up, LAUSD. So some districts don't do that. They do do that down here in the South Bay. The other thing that I wanted to bring up also is to know and understand for the parents that even though the school psychologist does this testing, they can't diagnose. A lot of parents think that their child is getting a diagnosis just by getting testing done at school, which is not accurate. Correct. The issue is that the school psychologist doesn't have the education required to diagnose a child, typically. And even if they have that education, they're not in a position at school. They give different tests. They don't give tests for the purpose of a diagnosis. They give the kind of tests that are intended to say, how is this interfering with school? Or how is this child's achievement helping them do well at school? But it's all geared toward how they're functioning at school. It's not the same. It's true. I've run into cases in LAUSD where the achievement testing is all they do. (laughs) And there's a lot of different ways to establish a child's ability. But I guess it kind of leads into the next thing I think to talk about is what I always do in that kind of situation is if I don't think the testing is good, which is most of the time, honestly, I request an individualized educational assessment. The shorthand for that is IEE. And that is where uh, the parent can go to a private person, an educational psychologist, and request a full assessment of their child, an educational assessment. And it can be similar to what the school was looking for, but they'll go into a lot more detail. And the school has to use that when the IEP team meets. They have to take that into consideration. Who pays for that? District can pay for it. They can also refuse to pay for it. But if they refuse to pay for it, they have to file or due process. Basically, they have to sue the parents if they want to say no, which happens sometimes. If they think their report is 100% and their report is perfectly adequate, they can do that. 
more often than not, they'll just pay for it. And then we have the school psychologist with their report and we have a doctorate in psychology with their assessment sitting at the IEP meeting and able to give input. So where something is blatantly missing from the school's report, like capability testing, then an IEE to me is a no-brainer. That's just the next step. Often I find that school districts get the IEP part wrong. Mm. And when I get an IEE, we have someone else look at it and someone else test the child and the IQ is actually much higher. And I think the problem is you can imagine a child with a reading disability, given a test that requires them to do some reading, they're not going to do well on that test. And it's not going to be because of their capability. It's going to be because of their disability. So the private psychologists I've worked with can explain this to the team and they explain it to the parent. They explain it to me. They give further testing to really break down if somebody scores badly, like why? Because if there is really four components of that test and they did horrible on one, but okay on the other three, then the composite score doesn't really tell you the real problem. You need to know that one component of it that the child is having problems with so you know how to help the child. And I think getting good testing is everything for knowing what this child needs to improve. So having testing that you agree with is the most important thing. Uh huh. So in this timeline, just so I can understand it, because I didn't actually know much about this stuff. You have the 15 days, they come up with the assessment plan, they come back to you with their testing within 60 days. And at that point is when you say, you know what, I also want this. I want to go a step further. Okay. Yeah. So you're in your first IEP meeting, you go over all the testing, they talk about eligibility, you finish the whole meeting. And, you know, then that's the time to decide, do I like what they've offered here? Do I agree with their testing? Do I think they've got it right? Do I think that this plan for my child's education is going to help? And I think it does it, you know, you take a day or two after the meeting and it sits with you. And I talk to my clients about this and they have an impression about, yeah, this is good, or this just isn't my child, or I feel like some things are left out. So at that time, we would request an IEE in writing. So that means when they're in the room with the IEP, they present the IEP to you, the parents hold off on signing so that they can noodle on that. Parents often feel pressure in the room to sign it and they don't have to. No, in fact, they shouldn't because, you know, everyone in the IEP meeting is trying to make the parents feel happy and good. You know, I've never been to an IEP meeting where that wasn't the case. I mean, they understand the parents are stressed, but they also want the parents to feel like the school has got it down and they're going to take care of things and the child is great and the child's in good hands. Sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not. But I feel like that attitude is, I mean, that's where they start, you know, and they want the parents to just feel like they can defer to the school. And it's important for parents to know that some of that is really pressure on them intentionally and that they don't have to do everything that the school wants just to make everyone feel happy in the room. And I feel like it's very appropriate to say, this has been great. I appreciate everybody's input. I need a little bit of time to think about this and to look it over and, and digest it. So, you know, I'll get it back to the school within a week or within four days or whatever. And every time we've said that, everyone's fine with it. It's not a huge problem. They expect that. So I would never sign an IEP in the room, even if I thought it went exactly how we wanted it. You have to sign that you were there, but you don't need to sign that you approve of the document. And that you received the notifications. Oftentimes I've been in quite a few. So, you know, a lot of clients, parents, you don't know what you don't know, right? And they don't know if this is actually what their child needs or what is... They're not experts in education. So they're relying on others to help guide them along, right? And also it's stressful and you don't always have a chance to really digest it until you can just think about totally. it. Totally. As a parent who has gone through this, you know, Ann Bennett, lots of other parents' IEP meetings, I know that there's a process and it can't all happen in an hour. Yes, definitely not. When would you say a parent should hire an advocate or a lawyer? Should they automatically hire someone because they don't know and they're not experts in the field? Or what do you usually suggest? You know, I think it's very individual. I do a lot of consulting work with families where we just have a phone call. I review all the testing and I give some recommendations. 
if parents are very informed, they don't always need a lawyer. I think an advocate or a consultant is almost always beneficial. The child is almost always going to come out with something better. I don't think that most people need a lawyer, especially not right off the bat. But schools, they're under enormous stress to not spend extra money. And all of these programs cost money. And if they think that they can give the littlest amount and hope that that works, that's what they'll do. And so knowing what to ask for and knowing your rights as a parent and knowing what your child's entitled to, that knowledge is a lot of power. So that's the most important thing, I think. Whether or not you need to sue the school district to get it, I don't think most people need to do that, especially if they know their rights going into it. Although I think some people, that's the only way to get what they need. I wouldn't say the majority. Hi, Smarties. This is Rachel here. We hope you are enjoying our conversation with Grace Clark. I just wanted to pop in here and talk a little bit more about Learn Smarter Pro, which we mentioned in this episode. Learn Smarter Pro is our six-week group coaching for professionals where we will provide professional and individualized support, behind-the-scenes business trainings, group coaching, and more. We are going to be talking about things that we will never be talking about on the podcast, Smarties. So if you are a professional interested in more interaction with us and more direct coaching from us, please email us at rachelandsteph at learnsmarterpodcast.com and we will shoot you over the application. We are intentionally keeping this group small and we will only be accepting applications until March 15th. Now back to Grace. When you have your child at a private school, what are the rights? Because a lot of parents sometimes think, oh, well, I have my child at a private school, so... I'm not entitled. Yeah, I'm not entitled. It doesn't affect me, things like that. But it actually does. Yeah. If you're in a private school, you still want to have an IEP. It documents your child's progress. It makes sure that they're learning private schools. You know, they don't have to follow the same rules as public schools. And they don't have to even give the same curriculum. Especially kids who have trouble with learning, you really want to make sure that they are learning from year to year. And when they're at a private school, the only way to do that is through an IEP. Otherwise, the school can tell you that they're learning and there's no safeguard mm. to make sure that's happening. So kids still can qualify for an IEP, but they don't get the same kind of service plan that they do when they are at public school. When they're at private school, they get something else. And different districts call it different things, but it's usually called like a private school plan, something like that. And that's where the parent is choosing to have their child educated, not in the public school system, but there are still things that they're entitled to have. And it's usually in the form of like consultation. Somebody from the public school can call the private school and they can talk about the child and the child's needs and make sure that those needs are getting met. Sometimes you can get speech and language services, or they call occupational therapy a related service because it doesn't really directly help a child with their education, but it helps them access the things that can help with their education, like having better handwriting. Sometimes you can get that when you're at a private school, but you're not going to get the same full offer of faith that you would if you were at public school. Does that match what you guys see? Yes. I don't know that they see the value of going through the whole process if they're in private school. It's something that I bring up because they're entitled to it. But maybe I'm just not explaining it and advocating for it in a way. But Steph, what are you going to say? I was going to say there's a couple of times where I've seen it come up and be really helpful. Number one, if a child does need to go back to public school for whatever reason, they move, parents financially, situations change, things like that. Having that in place because you just never know is always a good idea. The second thing is when they have to do testing for you know ACTs and SATs college and board. all of that. Yeah, college board stuff. Now that they've changed the law that if the school provides it, they're supposed to give it. But I think having a safeguard is always, you know, a good idea. The other thing that comes up is when they go to college, because you can transfer a lot of that testing and what they might need as accommodations to college. And most people don't know that. And forget about college, but later on when you're going and taking the LSAT or you're taking another standardized test for their career, it's good to have that documentation. We always talk about the necessity of having documentation for years prior. Yeah. 
especially now the college board is really looking at that with varsity blues and all that. They're really looking at the long history, especially for getting accommodations for some of those testing tests you know, not everybody is going to get an accommodation just based on their doctor's diagnosis. And so when that decision is being made, the more of a record that you have of, especially like, you know, here's where we started and we've worked really hard to get here, but only with this help, you know, the other thing that's interesting is an IEP under the IDEA that applies to public schools and it doesn't really apply to college because once you graduate high school, then your protections under that law stop. But you've probably heard of 504 plans, which are slightly different. They're plans that you get at public school that offer accommodations, but generally not services. And that is something that will apply in college. So if you have an IEP, I often recommend changing it to a 504 plan during you know the end of your senior year. And then those accommodations will apply in college, even if it's a private college. So let's talk a little bit more about the difference between an IEP and a 504. The family would be maybe entitled to a 504, but not an IEP. Like how does that all get decided and worked out? Yeah. So it's going to be in that IEP meeting after your child's been tested and they're talking about eligibility. They may find that your child doesn't have a qualifying disability under the IDEA, the ones that are listed, but your child's still struggling. And in order to kind of level that playing field between your child and their peers, they need some accommodations. They don't necessarily need special education services. So a 504 plan would be able to give them those accommodations. For example, preferential seating in the classroom so that they can make sure that they're not getting very distracted by neighbors or by too much distance or if they need to be able to type everything because they are, you know, plagued by messy handwriting or they need more audio because their reading is very slow, even though they're managing to kind of keep with it. Those are accommodations. And a 504 plan is a document that says what accommodations the child needs to level the playing field. And then they are able to kind of have a similar experience as their peers in school with those accommodations. But they're not really getting special education. They're not getting any evidence-based instruction. They're not getting pulled out of class to work with a learning specialist on any particular skills. That's not something that they're needing in order to make progress. That's a great way to explain it. That was a great way to explain it. (laughs) (laughs) What is the school responsible for and what is the parent responsible for? This is funny. I was talking to a client the other day and she has a kindergartner and they're just doing their first IEP, which is young. And, you know, he's really having trouble with the reading component and the writing component, but he's a wonderful child and, you know, has good friends and he's bright and interested, but that stuff is just not clicking. And she said, oh, I've been working with him and we're reading the Bob books and the teacher says to read to him. But every time I really try to work with him, you know, he's crying and it's this terrible experience. And so she kind of wanted to know, like, what am I supposed to do at home? Because the teacher tells me to like read, help practice with him, you know? And I said that I wouldn't do anything at home that's making him extremely upset over learning because it's not going to help. And I told her her responsibility was to, you know, make sure he got a good night's sleep and feed him a good breakfast and get him to school on time. And it's the school's responsibility to educate him. And schools like to put a lot of this on parents, but it's really the job of the school. And, you know, you can do things to help if it's fun for you and your child. But uh, if your child's coming home every night and having tons of homework and it's miserable and it takes some hours to get through it, then maybe that's a child that they can give a reduced homework load to. And that can be part of the IEP. Um, you know, because that's really not the intention. That's not helping anybody learn. Most teachers don't want their kids to have to go through that either. That's not making them get better. You know, that's just making them hate school. And then hate their parents for making them do all the work, which is where we come in all the time. (laughs) I bet. I bet you see that all the time. Oh yeah. Every day. We talk all the time about how a lot of the work that we do with the parents is about reestablishing their relationship with their child, not based around their child's learning issue. Absolutely. This is what the school should do. And so if this kindergartner is not learning, from the way that they're teaching it, then they need to teach him in a different way so he can learn. And that's where, you know, special education comes in and also making sure that a child has evidence-based instruction as part of their special education. That means that, you know, it's not just somebody slowing it down. You know, that's like if somebody's speaking a foreign language and you don't speak it and then they just like 
say it louder. That's right, not going to help, right. right? You need, you want to make sure that your school is giving an evidence-based program, which means that it's been peer reviewed and studied and that there's like actual statistical proof that this program helps kids with the profile of your child. So this child is getting his IEP and he's going to have an evidence-based reading program and he's going to get specialized instruction in a very small group of kids like him. And then I expect that he will progress with that, you know, but not in the regular classroom. Hmm. What are some of the reasons that you would get more involved beyond the consultation? And we should add that nobody goes into the IEP process planning to take this to due process and suing the district. Nobody wants to do that. No. So what are some of the stories, I guess, that you can share where it makes sense to go down that path? When do you need a lawyer? Mm -hmm. So you can do all the things right to get a good IEP. We haven't talked about goals, but that's the part of the IEP that makes sure that your child is learning. Go into that for a second. So talk about goals and then we can talk about when does a lawyer get involved. So after you determine eligibility, the next part of the meeting will be to talk about goals. And goals are specific instances of, you know, their current ability that the school wants to improve. So if you went through all of their testing, you would pick out all of the areas of their current performance that are low. And you would say, we need to write a goal for that to increase. The child has a right to have the gap between them and their peers narrowed. So they need to have goals that are at their grade level that are going to move them along faster. So not just like they're starting to learn the same as their peers, but that they're actually going to, you know, close the gap between them and their peers. So every low area should have a goal and the goals can also cover functional behavior. So like if your child has so much trouble with sitting still that it's impacting their ability to learn, then that can be a goal. It doesn't just have to be like a reading goal or a writing goal or a math goal. If they have trouble socializing, trouble with friendships, that can be a goal because that has to do with their ability to learn things that you know will make them a functional person. So every like weak area needs to have a goal and that goal is going to say who's responsible for the goal. What is it a special education teacher? Is it a speech language pathologist? And it's going to describe the knowledge or skill that needs to be taught. It's going to describe how you're going to measure that the child gets better. And it's going to say, you know, in a year from now, this is where the child will be. And this is how we're going to measure that. Okay. And then usually there's some benchmarks in between to make sure that the child's on track. So to get back to your previous question about when you hire a lawyer, if your child is not meeting their goals, this is a big red flag. So you know, getting a good IEP requires having good testing and, you know, knowing how to make sure the goals are right. But then, you know, you do all that and you have to make sure that the school is following the IEP and that your child is meeting their goals. So where I come in with legal representation is often where the school is not following an IEP and the child is not meeting their goals and the school is not really coming up with anything better to do about it other than saying, oh, they're not meeting their goals. We don't have no idea how to educate your child. You know, that's a problem. They don't get to do that. Sometimes it comes up with placement the parents believe the child needs to be mainstreamed and sometimes a school wants that child to be in a special day class. That's an issue that I get involved with. That's a legal issue because the law definitely preferences all kids to be uh, together. The, most kids, unless they have a very severe limitation, need to be with their peers and learn from their peers. And studies show that that's good for all kids, not just kids with disabilities. The law really prefers making schools have that happen. And a lot of schools don't know how, don't have the education and the resources. And so they're against it. So that's another place I come in frequently. So Grace, my last question for you is, what do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of this process? When my son was you know, six and really struggling in school, I felt like a lot of it was my fault and my responsibility. And I mean, we're always responsible for our kids, but I really should have leaned on the support that I could get from their school. And if I didn't feel that support, that I could have demanded it and that we had a right to that and that he had a right to that. And when I talk to parents, I feel like that's the number one impression that I want to make on them. And, and it's not just the feeling, it's knowing what questions to ask and knowing what should be happening. And that if it's not happening, there is an answer. If your child's not meeting their goals, the school needs to up the services. It's not just my child's not learning and it's terrible and I have a child that can't learn and I'm sad. There is an answer. And the answer is 
it's there for you to take advantage of. So that's what I wish I knew. And that's what I try to help parents figure out for their child so that they can help their child learn. And I think it's important to note you as a person, since I know you, are not the type of person that is wanting to just go feet first, get into the deep end and go straight to you know suing the district. But you have a more collaborative, overarching goal of making sure that the kid is getting what they need. It's good for our kids to do what they can do as people to swim in the streams that they're in. I don't want to make everything much easier for my child so that they don't ever have to accommodate or stretch. I want them to have to be challenged. But when the field is not level and there's real learning disabilities or other kinds of disabilities standing in their way, it's just not a fair expectation to ask of them. So I do try to take a reasonable approach. Which we so appreciate. I'm sure you see all kinds of parents in your practice. <laughs> that's another podcast episode. <laughs> and in fact, that's probably nothing we'll ever discuss on the podcast. No. But <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if you want to coach with Steph and I, we are happy to share those stories with you. Reach out to us. I bet. I love it. <laughs> if you're interested in some one-on-one coaching. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, man. If we ever did an episode, Steph, on like how to deal with challenging parents, <laughs> we'd be the most downloaded. <laughs> we're starting Learn Smarter Pro, which is going to be a group workshop format that we're going to do virtually with some smart and that might be a whole training. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun for us and for our audience too. They want to participate. So Grace, how can people get in touch with you? So my website is www.specialedattorney.org. They can email me at grace at specialedattorney.org. And you know, I'm happy to talk to them about what they're going through and try to figure out the plan that would suit their needs the most. Yeah. And important to note that it's not just in California. No, absolutely. You know, most of these laws are federal. The IDEA is a federal law. The 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which is the 504 plan, that's federal law. So, you know, this applies everywhere. We've already put that information of how to reach out to Grace in our show notes. So if you're interested in connecting with her, go ahead and scroll down into your podcast app and all that information is there in the show notes. All right, Grace, thanks so much for being a part of this Thank and for you. agreeing to come on and do or this. It's nice to come and talk to you guys. My favorite thing to talk about, so I can talk to you all day long. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode. If we get questions from this episode, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we can dive deeper. I love it. IEP is like 2.0. IEP 201 <laughs> or 202 or whatever. 200, yeah. Right. All right, Grace, thank you so much for being here. Thank cool. you. Okay, have a good day, Bye. guys.